Osner, he's going to preach to us this morning. Uh, Nate, if you remember, was an intern with us a few uh, last summer, two summers ago. Not this past summer, but the summer before that, right? Is that correct? I don't know. Sometime. Nate was an intern with us. <laughs> it's been a long week. Uh, and so uh, Nate is going to bring the word to us this morning. And uh, just to let you guys know, um, I'm super thankful to the session. And, and Nate, uh, as well as Brandon Bowler, is going to be preaching next week. Uh, just this past week, I was uh, participating in some presbytery stuff. And so uh, getting a break on those things has been really helpful. Uh, and so we are going to pick back up the Imago Day sermon series on uh, the Sunday after that, December Sixth, I think it is the first Sunday of December. We'll just go with that. Uh, and uh, that I, I want to make special mention of that because that Sunday is the the Sunday that will we've been setting up uh, sort of the framework for thinking about what it means to be human and uh, the Imago Day and what the, all that means. And then, uh, as I said, we're kind of leading to a sermon where we tackle some of the ethical issues in our culture surrounding that. So that will be that Sunday. Uh, after service, we have our family meeting because it's the first Sunday of the month. Uh, and so during that family meeting, we're actually just going to have sort of a Q&A dialogue um, where I'll answer questions and we can engage in some dialogue about those topics. Um, we totally recognize that some of those topics are going to be really challenging and difficult, and uh, you're going to have more questions about those things, and we want to open that dialogue. Uh, we're not going to answer all of those questions in a sermon, unless you guys want to be here for a long, long time. Uh, and, and even still, we're not going to answer all those questions because we think these are really nuanced and complicated issues. And so we want to create dialogue in those ways. And so be thinking already uh, through the sermon series that we've already gone through so far, if you have specific questions um, be thinking about that, and we'll figure out a way to submit those questions so that you can submit those anonymously as well, um, and, and we'll kind of try and tackle as many of those as we can during that family meeting. So, all right, Nate, sorry, long introduction. Nate Osner's great, so let's, uh, let's bring him up. Uh, Nate is currently RUF, uh, the RUF campus minister at Purdue University as well, so he's back in the state. Uh, we're super excited about that and uh, excited to have him here. I find it ironic that the week that I come home for the holidays, my father begins praying for special grace uh, for the holidays, but we are going to transition to the Word of God. Uh, If you want to open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 8, I'm going to read that before we get started. It says here, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain." Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, 
received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. They, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and changed my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Uh, As I was thinking about this sermon this week, I was reminded of uh, a scene in one of, my, one of my favorite television shows. It's called Master of None. Aziz Ansari, who's a stand-up comedian, wrote uh, essentially a semi-autobiographical television show about himself, about relationships, uh, about him uh, working in television and in movies. And I guess if you think that you're really funny, then not only do you do stand-up comedy, but you write a show about yourself. Um, and in near the tail end of the first season, Aziz Ansari is dating someone that he's dated for almost a year, and they've come to this uh, crux in their relationship where they're trying to figure out uh, where do we go from here? What, what is our relationship like at this point? And so they find themselves at a wedding, and they're watching the two people take vows to one another, and both of them start to recognize or ask the question, is this us? Or could this ever be us? And they, they start to get into this huge argument after they come home from this wedding. This, this big argument where they're asking if, if they're really in love like these, this other couple is, whether their relationship can go on, yada yada. And they get to this point where they're going to play a game with each other. And the game is going to be, they are going to write down a percentage on a piece of paper of how much they are sure that the other person is the one, which to me sounds like a horrible idea in the midst of conflict with your partner uh, to play a game about how much the other person is in love. But they do this, and as they reveal the number... The number is not the same. One of them puts 80%, one of them puts 70%, and then they just, it sort of tails off and they're no longer together. And as I was thinking about this text today and I was thinking about that scene, I think often the game that we try to play with God is one in which we are constantly checking our percentage about how we are feeling in that relationship. It's sort of like, uh, if you've heard of the, the whoop, it's like it tracks how recharged you are when you sleep. Uh, this is the game that we are often playing. We're constantly checking our percentage. We treat it as though either God's number is always creating, is always changing, which creates a constant anxiety in us, or we are looking at our number constantly anxious about how to get that number up. We're in this cycle. We don't know where to turn. We don't know what to do. The numbers keep changing in our head, and we feel unsure, insecure, anxious, all of the above. So what are we to do? See, the result is often our service to God's 
that will give us a momentary feeling of surety, they always feel 100% in the moment. Or we pretend like we are 100% by enslaving ourselves to our own works. But tonight, or today, this morning, we're going to explore what it looks like when we do both of those things, because often it's ever-changing, and how the gospel perplexes us toward a better way of being. So, three points. First, our own captivity. Second, the love we desire. And third, our eager waiting for what is sure. So first, our own captivity. Now, if you'll flip back with me to verses 8 through 11, it says here, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Now, as the argument goes, when considering the Galatians, or the Galatian heresy, or the problem of this church... And their false understanding of the gospel, which in many ways manifested itself in different ways. First, the Galatian church, Paul had come to them and preached the gospel to them, and they had believed it. And then these Judaizers, or these rulers of the Jewish faith, who were interested in this church, came and started teaching a a gospel that was contrary to the one that Paul had preached And so they come and they start teaching that, oh, well, if you're a male, it's okay that you're a Christian, but you still need to be Jewish. So what do you need to do? You need to be circumcised. If you're not circumcised, you need to start observing days and months and seasons and all of these Jewish traditions because the gospel simply was not enough. It could not have been enough because it was too simple in their minds. You're dismissing thousands of years of history For this guy, Paul, who showed up preaching the gospel of Jesus, and that is a problem for us. And so now Paul is going to turn pastorally to an issue that tends to take hold of our hearts all of the time. And it had taken control of the hearts of the Galatians, and that is that of idolatry. Now, in considering the outflow of these elementary principles that Paul decides to speak of... There's been a forgetfulness for the Galatian church of who they are in Christ. It wasn't simply that they had started observing days and months and seasons, that they had started being circumcised, but all of these things were a compromise of the gospel that Paul had preached to them, that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone that they would be saved. And the result has been not only that they had forgotten the gospel, that they had fallen back under the law. In their own captivity, they had nowhere to turn. See, the active choice that the Galatians were making is to be slaves to the world. That in giving up the gospel, that not only had they become slaves to their own sin, but they were slaves to all of these elementary principles. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Well, most likely he's referencing pagan worship and the reference to worldly principles. 
And in Greco-Roman culture in this day, they likely were worshipping all sorts of things. Not just gods, but also the elements, right? If you've seen Avatar The Last Airbender, it's earth, it's fire, it's water, and it's air. Those were the things that they started to call upon or that was influencing not just their Judaizing of the Christian faith, but also their understanding of the gospel. Or as I like to say, they were both farmers and lovers. See, oftentimes the two most popular gods or pagan gods that you would worship were either agricultural gods, so you'd bow down to these gods hoping that the crops would show up, or you would bow down to these gods of love in order to get as much pleasure out of the world as you possibly could. There were many, many problems. And often these people were turning back to their former worship. And I think this begs the question, how is this different from what we see all around us today? And it may not be as obvious. People may not be bowing down to gods of sex or agriculture. But it can manifest itself in a variety of ways. And I think the point that I want to drive home is to ask the question, where are we placing our faith or our hope in expectations that our gods would give us something in return? Because if we're evaluating ourselves in our own predicament, what we end up doing is forgetting the gospel through the righteousness that we seek for ourselves in serving a variety of gods. We're enslaved to gods of our own hearts. Maybe some of us, it's our career. How successful are we becoming? How much money are we making? Maybe for some of us, it's what are we doing in our community to give back? And that's a lot of these things you'll notice are not bad things, but they're things that we place our faith in to try to make us right, to make us good, to increase our percentage, if you will. Maybe some of us are stuck in addiction. Maybe we're obsessed with money or perfection or religious achievement. These gods manifest themselves in a number of ways. But all they do is leave us in our own captivity. And what happens when we serve these gods? What happens when we're stuck in elementary principles, as Paul displays here, while our lives end up reflecting these gods because of the worship that we're giving them? Our lives are a reflection of our gods. For me, uh, this was... Uh, peak middle school fashion. Now, some of you may have a hard time believing this, but I was on the basketball team in middle school. And when you were a part of the basketball team, it wasn't, basketball was surely my God. It was the thing that I loved. It was the thing I spent all of my time doing. On a day like today where it's freezing, I probably would have been outside shooting on my goal. But in middle school, Worshiping at the god of middle school basketball uh, comes with many other demands, right? Uh, it's also the way that you dress. So in middle school, uh, it was um, the mid-2000s, and so I was wearing really baggy jeans, but you weren't allowed to sag, so what I would do is I would put basketball shorts on underneath my jeans and then try to sag so that I wouldn't get in trouble because then my underwear wouldn't be showing. 
Uh, there was a lot of Aeropostale, Abercrombie, uh, you name it. It was very hip, very cool. Um, but also the peak of my worship was reflected in the shoes that I bought with my own money. They were the LeBron Sixes, and I wore them all the time. I thought they were amazing. And it was even better that I had bought them with my own money because these were a symbol of my status. It was a reflection of the God that I was worshiping because I wanted to be like everyone else. And that's a silly example, but I think if we were to take an analysis of our own hearts, we would see that there are still places that have taken root in us in deep ways in which we're still worshiping at the God of our idols. And I think often the result of this worship is the love that we desire. See, oftentimes we end up worshiping gods that will love us better than our God. And the result of our worship is that it dilutes our desire for what we were called to in the first place. If you'll continue reading with me, starting in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify that you, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. See, the problem with forgetting the gospel is that not only do we forget the good news, but we also become unsatisfied with what it is, with the gospel, with grace, with the truth of it, and we become satisfied with what has enslaved us. It's a dissatisfaction with the good news of the gospel. And it's being completely satisfied with the gods that we continue to worship. And it often results in us learning to scorn the good news for a religiosity or for the gods that we are enslaved to. See, Paul seems convinced that something terribly wrong has occurred because their motivations have changed. They were ready to gouge their eyes out for Paul. And now they're obsessed with these leaders who have taken them captive. And the results are devastating. Because they've turned back to elementary principles. They're unsatisfied with the gospel. They're completely satisfied with what they've been enslaved to, whether it be worldly principles or whether these teachers who have preached a false gospel. And the predicament seems to be growing. So what changes that? What can reform this community? Because the Galatians are lost. 
they're stuck and they're enslaved. Well, I think the remedy is a community that begins to be formed by the good news once again and moves toward a ministry formed by both vulnerability and weakness and security in the gospel. See, what Paul displays here intentionally is a community that valued weakness over power and personality. Paul is essentially saying that he was a hot mess when he shows up to Galatia. He's not powerful. He didn't have great personality. He's got some type of bodily ailment. He's struggling. He's hobbling into Galatia with the good news. And they recognize just how powerful that was. That it wasn't about Paul, but it was about the message that he proclaimed to them. It was an intentional community that valued the good news above all else. And I think often a community that is drawn towards something worldly or powerful or appeasing to our enslaved hearts will always value power and personality and persona over the gospel. Because we're unsatisfied with it. We're unsatisfied with it. We start to think that what you wear or how many people start coming around or even how easy it is to be in the seats sometimes, that that somehow displays that the Spirit is at work with a compromise of the gospel. So then, to return to the original question... How might the gospel perplex us toward a better way of being? It is by our renewed love to see one another formed by the gospel. See, the plea of Paul for the church, for the Galatians, for you and I is that Christ might be formed in you. That it might be formed in me. That the love of the gospel would form us into a freedom that we have inherited. That we could not have earned for ourselves. A righteousness that did not belong to us. The plea for Paul, for you and I, is that Christ would be formed in and through us. And this is why he uses such harsh language. If you'll, look, if you'll continue reading with me, it says here, starting in verse 16, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. That you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. That phrase, little children, is intentional. Paul 
is speaking to the love and care and affection he has toward them that Jesus Christ might be formed in them. That's why he uses such harsh language. That's why he asks the question, what has bewitched you? What has perplexed you? What has turned your hearts into thinking that you have heard better news than the gospel of Jesus Christ? What happened? What happened in our relationship? What has changed from what you first heard? That Christ might be formed in us. And that we would desire to see that in one another. That's the plea of Paul. And yet the only way that we can do that is together. See, what forms Christ in us is our desire to see one another formed into Christ. That is what we see in Paul defining what he desires to see in the little children formed in the gospel. That they would have a mutual accountability to one another, a mutual discipleship toward one another, that they would love one another well, that they would remind one another of the gospel regularly. But the church is not a, and discipleship is not a solo venture. It's not a one-man show. It's not just to be lived by yourself. Because my sanctification and your sanctification depends on one another that Christ would be formed in all of us. It's mutual dependence, it's accountability that is based on the truth of the gospel. That means that when our friend sees the God of our hearts, that they love us enough to tell us that that's our God that we're serving because they know that it will only hold us captive. That means that For some of us, we become members of a local church that we might submit to leaders and elders that would hold us accountable. That means that we would be intimately involved in the lives of one another, however messy that can be, because we desire to see Christ formed in one another above all else. So I guess the question I want to ask this morning is are you perplexed by the good news of the gospel? That Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and died a perfect death and rose and ascended victoriously on your behalf? Are you perplexed enough by that good news? Are you convinced enough of that good news or will you remain satisfied with your God's? that leave you empty and heartbroken and give you a moment's satisfaction all to give nothing in return. And that this gospel would be so perplexing to us that we would desire to share what Christ has done in us. Are we perplexed enough by the good news and what is that good news doing in us. Maybe it's at our job. 
Maybe it's here at City Hope. Maybe it's with our friends or our neighbors. But are we so convinced that Christ loves to save sinners like you and I and is continuing to be formed in us that we would be compelled to live as witnesses in a world that is surrounded by elementary principles? Would we display weakness where power is valued? Would we display love where persona is valued? Would we be so unimpressed by our own personality that we would give ourselves up to love others and to share the good news of Jesus with them. That's what being perplexed by the good news looks like. And the good news of this is that we wait for something that is sure. That Christ will return again for us. And while we wait, that we might desire to love one another and see Christ formed in us as a community radically changed by the gospel only. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness to us, your kindness to us. We thank you that you love us enough to crush our idols. We thank you for calling us to yourself in the first place, and I pray that you would continue to make us new by your Holy Spirit. I thank you that when our percentage feels low, that you are always sure that your promises can always be trusted, that your good news is always true, even on the days when we feel discouraged or when we struggle with doubt. pray that you would move us toward one another, that we would see Christ formed not only on us, but in our neighbors, that we would be a community that values above all else your good news. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.